There's a place in the world that will never be the same because of you. At St. Mary's University of Minnesota, we'll prepare you for that place. You will launch a new career or grow your current career because of your St. Mary's education. One that is personal, practical, and provides purpose to drive your decisions as you move from making a living to making your best life. And throughout your journey, we will be there as you set out for a destination that will never be the same because of you. St. Mary's University of Minnesota, because of you. From St. Mary's University of Minnesota, you're listening to St. Mary's Currents. I'm your host, Ben Rogers. Earlier this fall, criminal justice professor Trisha Klosky held a discussion on campus titled The Psychology of a Serial Killer. The recent release and success of Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story on Netflix, and the high demand of true crime podcasts, we knew we had to have Trisha on to discuss this topic. In today's episode, we talk about the psychology of the serial killer, why as a society we're fascinated about the topic, and whether that fascination is healthy. Trisha, thank you so much for joining us today on St. Mary's Currents. I think that this is going to be a topic that our listeners might be interested in, in hearing, so really excited for the conversation. But first, could you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do here at St. Mary's and what your academic interests are. Sure. Thanks for having me. I am in the Psychology and Social Sciences Department, and I am the criminal justice professor in that department. I have a background in criminal justice and sociology and criminology. And my primary teaching interests are in the areas of criminological theory, but also in terms of drugs in American society and mass incarceration. All right. So part of the reason why we're doing this today is earlier this year on the university, you you know did a lecture kind of about the psychology of a serial killer. Uh, so just first kind of, you know, why is it that you choose to study this and, and have your, your students study it as well? That's a really good question. I've always had an interest in serial killers because of the fact that they are so rare and they don't fit the usual mold for a homicide. And I guess it's been one of those things that fits into my fascination with crime in general, of why people do the things they do. And it's really funny that you asked the question, well, what made you get into this? Went out to see my husband's sister for Thanksgiving. The first thing I wanted to do, because she's in Philadelphia, is go to Eastern State Penitentiary. And we took her along with and did the tour. And we got back in the car and she says, you seem so nice. Why are you so interested in these things? And, and I just had to giggle. I've always been interested in crime and in the concept of why people do the things that they do. It's what hooked me into a major in criminology in college and kept me with it all the way through. All right. I've been to Eastern State Penitentiary out there in Philadelphia. It is a great tour. And yeah, listeners, if you're ever out east and have the chance, definitely suggest uh, checking it out. So among professional psychologists and criminologists, is there an agreed upon definition of what a serial killer is? And if not, kind of what are the differences between maybe how one, you know, group looks at it and how another group kind of... When you think about serial killers and the first aspect of defining a serial killer is how many people do you have to kill in order to be a serial killer? And the FBI back in the 1990s originally set that at three, and now it's at two. 
the big aspect of serial killing is that there's usually a cooling off period between murders and that there's usually some type of targeting or some type of messaging that are involved in the types of people that they do kill. And the problem with trying to identify them just simply by the number of people that they kill or how often they kill is that there's a lot of differentiation. The BTK killer, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill, actually stopped for a really long period of time and was, you know, basically a leader in the community and he just started right up again. And we don't really know why that actually happened. So studying serial killers means that you can study it from a psychology point of view, looking at things like how many of them are, are true psychopaths. And the answer is that is not many. Many of them are average intelligence. They tend to be white males, although in the past decade, there's been an increase in black males committing serial killings as well. And they tend to not have a diagnosable disorder of any sort. There are some commonalities. One of the things that's talked about is the, the triad, which is starting to torture or kill animals at a very small age, bedwetting after the age of 12, and liking to set fires. So there are things that the psychologists have studied in trying to look at motive and trying to look at profiling. But profiling is difficult because of the fact that there are a lot of differences. There are some ways that we can make differentiations between them in terms of the type of crime scene they leave. Are they organized and they take everything with them and they are not messy and they're targeting and they're tying people up because they don't like a lot of surprises? Or are they disorganized where they're leaving their crime scene a mess? They like to hang out afterwards and watch the cops on the scene. They tend to leave things in their wake and they tend to have specializations in what they like to do. So we can make those distinctions and that's more of a criminal justice criminology type base. But more often than not, psychologists are interested in are there any diagnosable disorders? Is there any psychopathy involved? Is there anything that we can connect to their learning as a child and their cognitive thinking? Right. You know, one of the things you mentioned was a motive, usually what leads them to kill. So what are some of the motivations that are usually seen in these kind of individuals who kill repeatedly? Typically, we will see in their childhood some sort of disorder or some sort of background in possibly abusive situations or having some sort of dysfunctional family life. That's very typical, but lots of people have that. They don't become serial killers. So it's kind of a combination of both the disposition to kill, but then also what happens to them during childhood and what kind of environment that they're actually living in as a young adult as well. And those things can compound each other and make for a serial killer. All right. You know, while I was researching this topic, I came across a Psychology Today article written by Dr. Scott Bond, the author of the book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Savage Murders, uh, which is a topic I kind of want to get into a little later. But in that article, Bond kind of talked about the idea that serial killers are either mentally ill or geniuses is a myth. Can you kind of speak to that at all? Yeah, the majority of them are of average intelligence. And this idea that they are people who are, you know, geniuses is a total myth as well. Not all of them also are sexual predators. Many of them are not. So that's another myth. And we tend to look at various types of things of, well, what do they have in their background? Right. 
You know, one topic that also came up during my research, and you kind of also mentioned this earlier, though, is the idea of nature versus nurture, mm -hmm. right? Uh, are serial killers born this way, or did something happen to them in their lifetime that led them to kill? What is usually the case here, and what is seen when there's this discussion? Well, it'd be really easy if there was one pathway to get there, but there are definitely ingredients that many of them share. Many of them will come from households where they were either mistreated or where they didn't get the type of support or nurturing that they need. They tended to be individuals who are sometimes loners, but sometimes they're not. I mean, Ted Bundy was very popular. People loved him to death. Whereas Jeffrey Dahmer was a total loner and had trouble making friends. So coming up with just one specific path is difficult. And one of the reasons why the FBI kind of backed off of profiling them is because of that aspect of serial killing. Now, criminologists, on the other hand, use what's called typologies. And those are kind of like profiles, but really it's about motive and it's about type of killing and it's about what types of things that they actually do. For example, some of them are what we would call mission-oriented serial killers. Those are people who think that they are hearing voices or someone's telling them to do something. Right. And then you have visionary serial killers, which hallucinate and, you know, like Son of Sam, who thought the black lab next door was telling him to kill people. Then some of them are lust killers and they can only have sexual function when they have complete dominance over people. And then some of them are serial killers who like to engage in just complete power relationships with their victims. And they like to somehow degrade their victims in some way. So those typologies are a way of being able to categorize different types of serial killers based on the common characteristics they all share. And there's been a lot of research done by that. James Allen Fox did a lot of research on that. And the University of Radford that has a serial killer page, and they've done a lot of work with that and came up with a serial killer database. And so there's a lot of people looking at this concept of serial killing. So kind of going back to the nature v. nurture, you do hear quite a bit about serial killers exhibiting antisocial or other behaviors that indicate they could be a serial killer at an early age. Is this mostly the case or is that, again, also kind of a myth? It's kind of a myth, yeah. Not all of them are going to be individuals who show certain types of signs in their younger years. Certainly some of them are. If you look at Ted Bundy, one of the reasons that he liked to kill women who were brunettes was because of the fact that he found out his mother was actually his grandmother and he was given away at birth. So some hypothesize that that was what led him down the road to doing that. Others might have really controlling parents, and that could be a reason why it happened. But there's rarely just one thing. It's almost always a multitude of factors that come together to create this individual. All right. So serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was active between the years of 1978 and 1991. Joseph James D'Angelo, known as the Golden State Killer, was active between 1974 and 86. was only recently arrested. You also mentioned... BTK, who took a long cooling off period and, like you said, led a largely public life. Am I correct there? Mm -hmm. Is there something about serial killers that kind of allow them to evade the law and capture so long and maybe like blend into their surroundings? Or does 
that issue more involve how authorities are investigating these cases? Well, it's nice that you brought up the Golden State Killer. I've actually used that in my crime and delinquency course as an example of how technology and also modern law enforcement developments have changed the way we are able to investigate crimes. The reason why the Golden State Killer was so evasive was, one, he was a police officer, but he was also jumping around from area to area, geographical area, but picking very specific types of cul-de-sacs and areas where it was easy to evade and had escape hatches for him. And he initially started off with breaking into houses and just robbing people. And then he started breaking into houses and sexually assault a woman while tying up the guy in another part of the house and putting plates on him so that if he moved, he'd be identified as, as moving. And what he started to do when he got really advanced in his approach is that he would actually make himself a sandwich in the kitchen and usually take weird, bizarre things like one earring as a trophy or a token. And that baffled law enforcement as well. But the keen part of the methodology here was the reason why he got identified was through these Ancestry.com things that are out there. And what they found was a relative who was closely matched to the stuff at the crime scene. And so because of that, they were actually able to track him down, along with the fact that the author of the book, All Be Gone in the Dark, which is about the Golden State Killer, basically was fanatical in hunting down this person and dedicated most of her time to trying to do it before she died of a fentanyl overdose. So that has something to do with it as well. And the interesting thing about what you bring up with the Jeffrey Dahmer and also with the Golden State Killer is that the 1980s to the early 2000s were what we call the golden age of serial killing. There were a lot more victims. The average number of victims during that time period was 13 or more for those serial killers, and they tended to be able to evade law enforcement because we didn't have things like CODIS, which is a computer system that puts out information about crime scenes and evidence so that other law enforcement agencies can say, oh, that matches our crime. Maybe they're one in the same. And a lot of law enforcement didn't really want to be cooperative during that time period either. They wanted to get their guy, so they weren't as willing to work with each other as they are today. Your average serial killer today kills less than eight people. But still, that's eight people. But because of law enforcement, I think one of the things that's happened is that there's been a decrease in the number of kills that they get before they get caught. All right. I know one thing that has helped capture serial killers, at least from my understanding, is criminal profiling. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what criminal profiling is and how it can be useful in capturing serial and mass killers? Also, you did kind of mention earlier on that there are some limits to it. So (laughs) criminal profiling, as the media portrays it, and as most people are aware of it out in the public, generally comes in the form of things like criminal minds. And what I like to tell my students is that no one is flying federal employees around in a private jet from one crime to another. The federal government is way too price conscious to do that. And then you have things like CSI and these other shows, NCIS, which show things and they're really hardcore working on one case at a time. No, that'd be nice if they only had one case at a time. But the profiling aspect of it actually comes from something called forensic psychology. And what those people do is just like you take a body and you try to figure out how this person died, 
you look at a crime and you look at the things that were done at the crime scene and try to assess what those things mean and put together some type of profile or some type of mock-up of what police could be looking for. And so that's much more common. You know, the criminal profilers that you see on TV, they don't actually do that. But there is a large basis for people being crime analysts and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What are the connections? What are the differences? How can we work together to figure this out? All right. And yeah, again, just kind of those limits of using criminal profiling, kind of what are you, what are you seeing there? Well, the limits to that is that whenever you start trying to profile a particular type, we did this with school shootings as well. After Columbine happened, we tried to put up our profile for what a school shooter looks like. But what that does is that focuses attention on simply one type and we may miss the other ones. Not to mention those profiles are often based on early information that's sometimes wrong. You know, in the Columbine case, for example, they were looking at the fact that they were wearing trench coats. They were calling them the trench coat mafia, and it really had nothing to do with that. And so it's later on that you actually are able to dig in and see what the evidence says and how it links in. But profiles that are done in order to try to catch somebody or in order to try to shorthand it are generally not that effective. Is that kind of where we get some of those myths that we discussed earlier, kind of that something happened younger in life or they showed signs early in life or, you know, again, back to that, they're either geniuses or mentally ill. Is profiling where those myths can come from? or Less than one in five actually have a diagnosable mental illness. Right. Uh, there are some geniuses who are serial killers. Charles Manson, for example, is sort of categorized as a serial killer, but really he got other people to kill for right. him. And he was a genius. But there are others who are just average intelligence or below average intelligence, and they're just not that smart. Jeffrey Dahmer was pretty smart and scored pretty high on scholastic tests, but he was also fairly socially incompetent and couldn't manage to hold a relationship together either. Right. So there's going to be some distinctions between them, just like you can't always say why someone does what they do based on one or two things that you notice about them. That's the risk you run with trying to do profiles, is that you narrow it down so much that you miss actual suspects in the process. We'll be right back in a minute. At St. Mary's University of Minnesota, our student success is at the heart of all we do. If you're ready to grow, to get an education that's future ready, and to go beyond making a living to making a life, St. Mary's is ready for you. Just like Emmy Johnson, Vice President and Chief Security Officer at Alina Health. I made the decision to go to St. Mary's for a plethora of reasons. One, I wanted to be able to see myself in the community as being a student. And the idea of going to a large university where thousands and thousands and thousands of people went to campus was a bit overwhelming to me. And so when I made the decision to go to St. Mary's, I wanted to be able to step in and be a part of the community. And the faculty, my fellow students welcomed me and I felt a sense of belonging right away, right as I began my undergraduate degree. The world will change for the better because of you. 
To learn more about St. Mary's University of Minnesota and start your journey, learn more at smumn.edu. We should do our own podcast. I'm sure that every true crime podcaster wishes that he was on the case right from the start. You know what? I should be recording this right now. Well, right now, the only thing that matters is that there's a killer on the loose. If we're right, then he could be living somewhere in our building. Oh, that is a very good line. Badly delivered, but a good line. So do it again for me. And this is what I need. I want you to really hit killer, you know, just killer. There's a killer. So now I kind of want to move on. I mentioned I wanted to talk to this topic earlier. And that's just kind of the fascination with true crime and serial killers. You know, after its release on Netflix in September, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, became the streaming service's second most watched English language series of all time. It also reached number one on the Nielsen Top 10 streaming chart in its first week out of release. You know, go to Apple, go to Patreon. Top podcasts are true crime. What do you think it is about these topics that have made them so popular in our society and in our culture? I think it's kind of like a bad car accident that you see on the freeway. You're driving by and you're like, oh, my gosh, look at all those crumbled cars. And you cannot help but slow down and look because it's something you don't see every day. It's massive in scope. And there's bound to be death and injury. And that's something that attracts our attention. Now, the second part of that is, do we actually have an appetite for violence? And some would argue after the Jeffrey Dahmer documentary came out, which was highly criticized because of the fact that they never consulted any of the victim's family members, and they got some things very, very wrong in the process. And they waited 20 years after the fact so as to avoid copyright infringements and other types of things. We're interested in that kind of thing because it is unique, because it's unusual, and because we want to see, we want to understand the bizarre. It's the same reason why people watch the television show Hoarders. Right. Or the same reason they watch, you know, New Jersey Housewives. Because it's just like, wow, there's people who actually live like this. There's people who actually do this. But we spent a lot of time in crime and delinquency talking about that Dahmer documentary and talking about why people are interested and why the attraction is there. And I admitted to the class myself, I'm fascinated with it too. Is that actually then supporting that type of behavior Are we creating an environment in which this is likely because people are interested in it? You know, we're making money off of showing these documentaries and these true crime shows. And at the same time, these are based on real life occurrences and real life pain. And we're watching as though it's a movie when, in fact, it is something that is very, very real. So why do we do that? I think it has something to do with the fact that we are fascinated with death. We are fascinated with people who do things that are out of the norm, and we want to know what makes them tick. Right. You kind of spoke to this a little bit in the last question, but do you think that this is a healthy thing for society, to have this interest and fascination with a topic like this? I think that it's very similar to, for example, violent video games and violent TV shows and the true crime genre in general which is that people are interested in it because they also want to feel like they understand it when they're looking at it. I think people who are vulnerable, like people who are mentally ill, people who are on the margins, for those individuals, I think that it does help feed into overall types of aggressive types of behavior. 
But for the rest of us, it kind of makes us feel like somehow we're in the know. So I look at a lot like gossip in the same way. Right. And my students were all over me when the Dahmer thing came out. And I have not seen it yet to this day because I know that once I jump down that rabbit hole, I'm not going to be able to pull myself out of it. And so I'm waiting to take a look. But I have read the article you spoke about and other articles that said, look, people, we need to look in the mirror about why we are making this popular and why we are supporting this type of thing as entertainment when this was somebody's heartache, this was somebody's life-altering moment. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, how you phrased it like that, why we make entertainment out of this. With this newfound obsession, we've seen an increase in things like Dahmer Halloween costume. You know, you go on any social media site and, you know, like, memes kind of making mm -hmm. light of these very serious situations. Can you just kind of speak why when talking about this, it's always important to keep the victim's perspective and, and shine a light well, there? Well, two things about that. One, I think that social media has definitely increased our thirst for those types of things, of making light of gruesome things, you know, and making light of things that can be seen as funny you know, dressing up as Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. And so I think the appetite is already out there. But the other part of your question, primarily because of the fact that the victim doesn't really have a place within our criminal justice system as a whole. The state is the victim. When you're being charged in for a criminal crime, it's always the state of Minnesota versus Jones because the state is the one who's being victimized. The victim is just a witness. The victim's families are just a witness. It oftentimes gets resolved without their input. It gets resolved through a plea bargaining because 97% of cases actually do. And so they're left out in the dark in terms of official capacity. But then you've also got these people who are making gobs of money off of their experience. And not only are they doing that, but they're getting stuff wrong. And they're using this as an opportunity for status and to make money. Would it have probably been a lot more helpful for them to say, well, we're going to make a donation to one of the funds in a victim's names or to a victim fund in general? Absolutely. That might have helped squelch some of the criticism, but it just looks like it's an opportunistic money grab and that you're like, oh yeah, this happened to you, but it's really interesting and folks want to see it. You know, we used to say the same things about talk shows, you know, that talk shows wouldn't be on unless people wanted to see them. And they had sort of a gladiator type of feel to it. You had all these different talk show hosts that were trying to shock the conscience. And I think that's what serial killers do as well, is it shocks the conscience. And so there's a market for it. And in a competing media marketplace where you've got Hulu, you've got Netflix, you've got Amazon Prime, all the different outlets that are producing content now, Netflix lost viewership over the last year. This helped them make up for that. And so they're looking for individuals to be able to dive into this kind of stuff because it makes the stockholders happy and it gets some more viewers. Well, Tricia, thank you again so much. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear. Cool, thanks for having me. St. Mary's Currents is a production of the St. Mary's University of Minnesota Office of Marketing and Communication. It is produced by Ben Rogers and Deb Nergang. It is recorded, edited, and engineered by Jeffrey DeMarsh. Our theme music is written by Will Van de Cromert. I'm Ben Rogers. We'll see you next time for St. Mary's Currents. <laughs>